0: Father in heaven, at the heart of this passage we see something of the importance of who we listen to, whom we take our counsel from. And so we pray this morning that you might soften our hearts, that we might hear your voice, but more than that, by your spirit would you be at work in us, that we might obey what it is you're saying. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. well, as I've just prayed, whom we listen to, the voices that we take note of really matter to us on a, on a day-to-day basis. The, the voices that shape us have a huge impact on our behaviour and how we live our lives, the things that are important. So We've said before at Magdlam Road, we live in a time when um, people know lots of things about lots of things, but aren't really particularly wise when it comes to how we live. That's the kind of generation we live in. Partly that's due to the internet, of course. We have access to Wikipedia. And so anybody with a quick Google, you can find out the information you need to know about the things that you're looking into, whether it be avocados or Zanzibar. Wikipedia will help you out, and you will appear like you know what you're talking about. Your friends will be impressed, unless they've looked at it as well. As well as that, though, The interesting thing with the internet is it changes the way that we think. It changes the way that we process. And one person puts it like this, and I think this resonates with me. Um, What the net seems to be doing is chipping away at our capacity for concentration and contemplation. So maybe we struggle to engage with deep thinking and deep arguments. Um, This person continues. He says, "Um, My mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. There's something in that. We're not particularly wise. Everything is quite shallow, not very well thought through. We also saw, though, back in January, February of this year, if you're a Maldon Road regular, part of the iGen series, that we're not particularly a culture that, that deals well with discussion or debate. We don't learn from others so well. We can struggle to be in disagreement with people. We can feel threatened by people who don't hold the same values as I do. We can almost feel unsafe. There needs to perhaps be warnings that you will deal with divergent ideas that may not match up with the way that you see reality. And so all in all, the question of where we go to for wisdom, what makes somebody wise, is a really important and live thing. To muddy the waters even more when it comes to biblical wisdom, at least, as we match up worldly wisdom with biblical wisdom, are the kind of people who offer us advice and wisdom now. Because, you see, age and experience in our world aren't particularly valued. Youth and vitality are valued. We live in a time when people worship youth and vitality. Of course, age doesn't necessarily mean wisdom. And indeed, youth doesn't necessarily mean folly, but if you think about the voices that matter in our culture at the moment, voices that shape our thinking and and shape our world, many of them are very young. Think of the so-called Instagram influencers. They are young. They are beautiful. And because of their ability, they gather followers and so they make money. They are incredibly powerful. They are courted by big corporations who want them to advertise their stuff. What's striking, though, in this passage, and as you read the Bible more widely, is that it's often the older generation who are called to invest in a younger generation, to pour into them, and indeed a younger generation who are, who are advised, commanded to respect and listen to an older generation. And that is something of the irony in our passage for this morning, 2 Chronicles 10. Think of the first nine chapters or so of Proverbs. Think of Solomon writing to his son, teaching him how to be wise. Maybe even that son was Rehoboam at the heart of Proverbs 1 to 9. And yet the irony we will see in 2 Chronicles 10 as you compare Proverbs 1 to 9 is that, while the son of Solomon is not particularly wise... In fact, he listens to the wrong voices. He, he ignores the right voices, listens to the wrong voices, and it gets into a huge pickle. He will reap the consequences of that. In fact, the nation will. Um, just before we dive in, again, a bit of bigger picture to remind you. Um, I recognize some of you are, are tracking with Chronicles. Other, it's a bit of a sort of black hole, and so I'll keep trying to remind and get some of the stuff to go in. Um, but remember in the first week, we spoke about three different sections in 1 and 2 Chronicles, There were genealogies from chapter 1 to chapter 9. That was our first sermon, just on the genealogies. And then we saw a united kingdom from 1 Chronicles 9 to about 2 Chronicles 9. And we've been there for the last six or seven weeks or so. And now, here onwards, 2 Chronicles 10 onwards, we've moved towards a divided kingdom. So, genealogies 1 1 to 9. And then the United Kingdom from 1 Chronicles 9 to 2 Chronicles 9. And now this last bit is where it all begins to unravel. We begin to descend the helter-skelter and it all goes wrong. We are starting our journey into the final third. And we said last week, but it's largely a period of decline. There are a few ups, but it is mostly down. It's mostly bad news. There are a few good kings, but they're mostly pretty rubbish. And do you remember, the thing that the Chronicle is wanting us to do is to learn the lessons of history. He is saying to us, don't do what they did, please. Please look at how it turned out for them. And please listen then to what the Lord is saying to us. Solomon's death, end of chapter 9. Have looked down. It, it marks the end of the United Kingdom. At this point then, there is a schism which which rends the nation into two. Do you remember the promised land? You've got the northern ten tribes, huge. Then you've got the two in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And because our chronicler cares about faithful worship, he will focus in on the south where the temple is, where Jerusalem is. Because there you will see the promises to David being worked out. It means the north is not forgotten, but the north is only remembered in the way that it relates to the south. Indeed, the north will end up in exile to the Assyrians and they will never really return. That they will intermarry, they will become um, Samaria, and it's not really until John chapter 4 and a conversation with a woman at a well that Samaritans are kind of brought back in, in a way, through Christ. In these early days of Rehoboam's reign, the son of Solomon, the son of David, this schism happens as we were told that it would What's interesting, though, is that the the fault is not really placed at the door of Rehoboam. Rehoboam is more painted as a young and foolish and naive king. Not so wicked, not so evil, but rather an immaturity that leads to being easily led, out of his depth, listening to the wrong voices. In fact, you get that idea later on in chapter 13. Um, Some worthless scoundrels 13 verse 7, some worthless scoundrels gathered around him and opposed Rehoboam son of Solomon when he was young and indecisive and not strong enough to resist them. He was a son of David, but he lacked the the wisdom that he needed. And so the helter-skelter begins to descend. Things do not start off well. Actually, if you look at the text, we get that idea from the very beginning There's a coronation ceremony that happens and the whole people gather together as with previous coronation ceremonies. This time it's a little different. Do you remember King David? He had his ceremony in his capital at Hebron, 1 Chronicles 11. We had Solomon. Again, the nation gathers together in the state capital of Jerusalem, 2 Chronicles 1. Rehoboam has gone to Shechem in the north. It was a sacred city. It was a site in the north where Abraham made sacrifices to God, so maybe we're reading too much into it, but it's almost as if Rehoboam has to go and try to find them. He heads north to them, proactively going to the people. He goes where they are rather than them gathering to where he ought to be. It's as if he's seeking to woo them. Uh, So it's almost as if from the start, the writing is on the wall for his relationship with the northern tribes. It looks like it's going to be rocky. But among them comes a man called Jeroboam. And we need to understand a bit about who he is too. Jeroboam was one of Solomon's officials. Again, if you know kings, which many will know kings better than chronicles, then you'll know more about Jeroboam from there. He was one of Solomon's officials. He had escaped to Egypt. We we don't hear exactly why he's escaped to Egypt. Um, The chronicler assumes we will know the story of this. Actually, it comes up in 1 Kings 11 to give us the background. The the prophet Ahijah has told um, Solomon that the kingdom will split into north and south. There will be ten northern tribes, two southern tribes. Why does God say he will do this? Because they've forsaken me. They've worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and they've not walked in obedience with me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws. The writings on the wall, Solomon's kingdom will be split, Jeroboam will go to the north and Rehoboam to the south. But Jeroboam returns for, for Rehoboam's coronation. And I think we're meant to feel it's a bit awkward. Who sent him an invite? What is he doing here? He is something of a rebel king in the north. That's in verse two. There is no food fight. But what does happen? With a slight slight sense of bated breath is the people ask Rehoboam, the new king in the south, whether he will continue to hit them with the same kinds of taxes that his father Solomon had. That's at the heart of this passage. They were being crippled by the king who seemed to be overtaxing them. Why would that be? Well, presumably... Because temples are expensive, because palaces are expensive. And so the people are feeling the pinch. And so to fund and to facilitate these enormous building projects, the taxes are high. And so the people say that it's finished. What's the plan, Rehoboam? What are you going to do about taxes? You can ease off a bit, can't you? Verse 4, your father put a heavy load on us heavy yoke on us but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you and on the face of it their request is totally justified because the old the old testament kings were not allowed to, to exploit their people if you remember the deuteronomy passage from previous weeks chapter 17 he wasn't allowed to acquire too much by way of possessions or wealth or treasure or horses in case he gets proud and greedy The law said no, and so the people say, remove the taxes, please. Rehoboam, well, no snap decision to start off with. The ball's in his court. He goes to inquire of his advisors. He goes to speak to his consultants, gets back to them three days' time. He puts the brake on. It seems a sensible plan for a new king. Come on, Rehoboam, are you going to lower the taxes? And he speaks to the elders, those with a bit of experience and grey hair and who had been around for his father. Verse 6, so he consults the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if you'll be kind to these people and please them and give them a favourable answer, they will always be your servants. It, it starts, well, starts well, but then it gets a bit sticky. Verse 8, But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. And that's an interesting pivot verse. Because it doesn't sound like he's got two lots of advice and he chooses which one he thinks best. It's as if they haven't said what he wants them to say. He rejects their advice. Maybe he already had his opinion. Maybe it was just a PR exercise to involve um, to speak to those with grey hair. He didn't like it, so he looks elsewhere. And what does he do? Have a look. He, he consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The, the young men who had grown up with him replied, the people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke light. And now tell them, my little thing, finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I'll make it even harder. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. He does the exact opposite of the elders. And indeed, in verse 14, when he speaks to the nation, he he exactly quotes what the young men have said verbatim.
1: We don't know who they are. Maybe
0: they were royal friends from his upbringing privileged. Maybe there were other younger men in leadership in, in the ranks who kind of got Rehoboam and knew his kind of vibe. Maybe he just found people who he knew would say what he wanted them to say or, or think as he thought. It's an interesting chapter for our times What are we to make of it? Clearly we are to note the folly of Rehoboam at this point. He is young, he is immature. There are good lessons to be learnt about whom we listen to, of of not ignoring the voices that we don't like. Of avoiding the echo chambers that sound just like us. We live in a world of echo chambers at the moment. Particularly if we're engaged in social media, the way things... The way the algorithms work, that we hear the people who sound like us, to our detriment. or of only paying attention to people who who say what we want them to say because we've already made up our minds. Striking, isn't it? The way that Rehoboam hears something, doesn't like it, so he goes to find somebody who, who it seems will agree with him. Wisdom, I think, would point us to a broad council of reference rather than to simply clones of ourselves. Rather than deciding too quickly and finding people who will back up what we want them to say to justify our stance. I see in my heart the ability to do that. But I wonder if passages like this would just make us press pause and look for a wider council of reference rather than gathering around us people who will say what we want them to say what our itching ears might want to hear. I think there are lessons as well in terms of carefully considering the folly of youth. I recognise in one sense that is contextual depending on where we think youth lies. Maybe it's an especially pertinent truth for our era. An era that's idolises, worships, glories in youth. Friends, let me encourage you to, to spend time and to learn from those who are older than you. To, to, to listen, to really listen. I'm often struck later in the Bible, do you remember that culta, countercultural nature of the way that Paul writes to Titus on Crete? Do you remember he's planted churches And he wants to set up sort of an intergenerational, intentional church discipleship method. This newly planted church, Titus is helping out. He's putting structures and people in place. And do you remember what he says? Paul says to Titus, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. And it's striking older women investing in younger women. Older men being examples for younger men. It's not rocket science, but this intergenerational sharing of wisdom seems to be the way that the kingdom of God will thrive. Younger folk, I'm not going to draw a line for what younger folk means, but younger folk, seek out wise voices in your life. Older generations, don't just have the voices from your age bracket, people who think just like you. And indeed, perhaps take care with the younger voices that we do listen to. They might not be as wise as we think. Older folk, again I'm not drawing a line here, but plan it into your diary. Maybe prioritise spending time with younger people to invest in intentionally. Mentor them, pass on wisdom and experience and pour into them. Pray that they might surpass you in their ministry in the years to come, in their life, that God would use you to build them up, and that the relay baton would be passed on and on and on and on. I think there are definite lessons that we are meant to learn from the chronicler in 2 Chronicles, chapter 10. Future generations need to listen to wisdom. Because like Rehoboam, we can easily gather around us people who say what we want them to say. I think there are lessons as well in terms of wise leadership, whatever level of leadership we might be in. As you consider Rehoboam, he he leads in a harsh and a heavy way. He is severe. He wants to crush his people that they might obey him. As Jesus might put it, he would encourage us to not lord it over people, as the Gentiles do, but rather to lead more in the way that he would. Christian leadership has a Jesus shape about it. Serving, loving, leading. Again, there'll be opportunities in home groups and this week and beyond to consider some of that, what that might mean and actually look like in the way that we lead. What's interesting, though, is verse 15 Verse 15, the way that the chronicler again ties the reality of God's sovereign plans and purposes alongside the culpability and responsibility of God's people. Verse 15, so the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from God, to fulfill the word that the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nabat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. You see, Rehoboam comes and tells them he's going to be harsh. The people say, no, no, please don't do that. And yet he ignores them. Why does he ignore them? Is he culpable for ignoring them? Does he do what he wants? Yes. Is he culpable for doing what he wants? Yes. Was he wrong to do what he wants? Yes. Was this turn of events from the Lord? Yes. Is God still sovereign? Yes. And the chronicler can hold both things in tension in a way that we struggle with, don't we? We really do. It's a liberating truth. Even in darkness and hardship and frustration, when we still may be culpable for what we do, God is still sovereign and at work. Trustworthy. Even when life is dark, he is weaving his purposes, even through our hardships, even through our sin. It's extraordinary. Of course, you see it particularly at the cross. You knew I'd go there, but particularly at the time of total darkness, where there is evil and culpability and horrible suffering, even then, God is sovereign. He's not out of his depth, he's not taken by surprise, but rather, he is still good and he is still in control. And the chronicler holds these two things
1: together in a way that we struggle with.
0: And so Rehoboam's reign begins. It's, it's said in deliberate stark contrast to the previous coronations. Previously, we were walking up the stairs of the Helter Skelter. Now we're beginning to descend. It's a different response from the people at the beginning. It's a different trajectory for the nation at this point. And so verse 16, see the people, see he's foolish. They've clocked him already. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What what part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel, look after your own house, David. They've rejected him from the start. They don't even see him as their king in one sense. And compare that with how David was, was worshipped. And if you're scribbling down, 1 Chronicles 12, verse 18, the, kings, the people said to the king at the coronation, We are yours, David. We are with you, son of Jesse. Success, success to you, and success to those who help you. For your God will help you. There they were rejoicing. Here they are saying, On your bike, Rehoboam. We're not interested. And so we begin
1: to descend the helter-skelter.
0: Again, actually, it's striking. It ties in with last week, if you remember, as Ellie was teaching the children and reminding the rest of us. This concept we saw last week of seeking the Lord comes again and again. So 2 Chronicles 12 and verse 14, on the next page, they look back and reflect on Rehoboam, And they say he did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. And where David, Rehoboam's grandfather, did have a heart who sought the Lord, he wasn't perfect, we've seen that. Well, so Rehoboam's reign begins with foolish advice from foolish friends. He's easily led, he's listened to the wrong voices, he's not sought the Lord. Sometimes when we read the Bible, there's a sense in which we're left wanting. Particularly as we encounter these kings through chronicles, we're left wanting. We can enjoy the meal to some extent. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. We're meant to see what it meant. We're meant to see how it applies. There will be ethical imperatives that come from it for us. We're meant to consider wisdom and who we listen to. But in reality, it's a little bit like eating fast food, isn't it? You finish your fast food of choice, and two or three hours later, you're hungry again. In fact, you're starving. You felt full up, and suddenly you realise there's nothing of real substance there. Yes, there are things I can chew on, but actually I need more. I need something that will truly satisfy me. And so with an account like Rehoboam, there's a sense in which it's meant to point us forward. We finish chapter 10 feeling frustrated, disappointed, and we long for a wise king who will listen to the right voices. We long for a king who will lead his people kindly. And so through something of the ugliness of Rehoboam, we see the beauty of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus comes then as one who is truly wise, who as a child, Luke 2 and verse 40, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Imagine having a wise child. Or as a teenager, Luke 2 and verse 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Imagine a wise teen. Or as an adult, Matthew 13, verse 54, he he came to his hometown and began teaching them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Or one who spoke in parables that both brought people in but blinded and baffled those who thought they were already in. Or indeed one whom Paul would say in Colossians 2, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the voice of wisdom whom we need to listen to. He is the place that we find life. Go to him to find how to live. Listen to his voice. His is the voice we need to hear.
1: But he's more than just wise, he's kind.
0: In fact, he's a, he's a servant. And where Rehoboam sought to squash his people and crush his people, force them to serve him, Jesus, Jesus is crushed. He is scourged for us as he loves us and lays down his life for us. He is the kind of king who comes with kindness and a yoke that is easy. He's not like Rehoboam. We were here a few weeks ago with um, Steve Robinson on our day away. Do you remember, he says, Come to me, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you remember the image? It's of two oxen together. One experienced and able and able to take the strain and bear the load. That's Jesus. And the other is us. We are yoked alongside him. We are inexperienced and young and foolish and naive. We are being mentored and trained by the old oxen, by him, the one we can trust. He shows us how to live. So if you're one feeling burdened, and weary, and overloaded, and like you can't carry on. And even perhaps, you might not admit it publicly, but even perhaps you feel like Jesus is a bit of a Rehoboam because you feel so overburdened, and you're doing stuff that you think he's called you to do, and you were sure, but you're just not so sure now. Well, remember that Jesus is the one who bears our load. He shares our burdens. He sets the trajectory. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do you see, through the folly and the harshness of Rehoboam, we see the wisdom and the kindness of Jesus. Rehoboam in his ugliness shows us how beautiful Jesus is. Let me lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, all kinds of things to chew over for us off the back of this passage. We, we pray that we might be a people who, who long for true wisdom, who don't simply gather around us, people who say what we want them to say, but love us enough to give us wise advice In a world that idolises and worships youth, might we honour and respect and love those more elderly among us, those who have experience and wisdom and have lived. Make us please a wise people, make us a wise church. But we thank you too that through through the folly and harshness of Rehoboam, we see the wisdom and the beauty of Christ all the more clearly. Thank you that his yoke is easy, and his burden is light and so, Father in heaven, we pray particularly for any who are feeling crushed at this point, overwhelmed by by life, overwhelmed by the reality of sin and suffering might you help them to come to the Lord Jesus. Come to the one who said, all who are weary and burdened come to me and I will
1: give you rest. And help us please to be able to give those burdens to him. Thank you that his shoulders are broad. And thank you that he is kind. In his name we pray. Amen.